Welcome to the Addiction Psychologist Podcast, brought to you by the Society of Addiction Psychology. All right, welcome to the show. I'm Dr. Noah Emery. I'm Sam Acuff. And this is the Addiction Psychologist Podcast. And today we are super lucky to have two fabulous scientists and clinicians join us. We have Dr. Seema Klifasefi and Dr. Susan Collins joining us. Seema is an associate professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the University of Washington and the chair of the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee of the Society of Addiction Psychology. Susan is a professor in the Department of Psychology at Washington State University and the convention chair for the APA uh, meeting this year and the chair of the membership committee for the Society of Addiction Psychology. And together, they co-direct the Harm Reduction Research, Treatment, Research and Treatment Center at the University of Washington. All right, Seema and Susan, thanks for joining us. So the first thing that we'd like to do is to have um, our experts explain a little bit about their background and training. Uh, so if you could, uh, Seema, if you wanna start, just tell us a little bit about your background and training. Uh, great. Thanks so much for having us um, on this podcast. So my name is Seema Klifasefi. Um, I am a cognitive and experimental psychologist by training. Um, I then 14 years post my PhD went back and got a clinical master's in social work. So I have uh, a, a long history around um, you know, starting off as an experimental psychologist and then uh, my postdoctoral training, I came to the Addictive Behaviors Research Center where I was really focused on clinical research and designing clinical interventions um, for people who use substances and recognized that I actually didn't have the clinical training to be able to deliver those um, interventions myself. And so, um, and then due to the nature of the work that Susan and I were doing together, um, working alongside people experiencing home Homelessness. Um, I decided, um, and because Susan was a, already a licensed clinical psychologist, um, we decided that it made sense for me to, to um, get the, the social work perspective, um, particularly looking at kind of these larger sociopolitical economic factors that contribute to the conditions that we were studying. So that is a little bit about my background. Outstanding. That's a very interesting kind of path less taken. If you will, and I, I feel you on that. I feel you on that. I think I took the road less traveled as well. So I'm right there with you. Susan, if you'd be so kind as to tell us a little bit about your training as well. Sure. So I grew up in a family that has a multi-generational multi experience of addictive behaviors and substance use disorder. And I really went to school to figure that out. Which <laughs> There are those of you out there wondering if that's a legitimate way to get into the business. I think it is because there need to be people who have that lived experience and can bring that to the table. Um, but I think it was challenging for me to figure out throughout my studies how to feel about my own past, my family's past, um, and how to process that in real time. So I think that was a big part of my journey. Um, but because of that sort of drive that I had um, from my family background and my own background with addictive behaviors, I knew what I wanted to do right away and I went straight through. That was, <laughs> that was my destiny, that was what I was supposed to be doing. And so um, I'm a licensed clinical psychologist now. Um, I um, 
am a professor at Washington State University. I maintain an affiliate professorship at the University of Washington where I co-direct with SEMA, the Home Reduction Research and Treatment Center. And um, we basically have committed our work to, um, you know, figuring out what we can do to um, ensure that community members who are directly affected by substance use um, and, um, and its sequelae um, have a voice and a say in what substance use treatment looks like and how that's experienced. Um, and that's what we do. Um, I'm also a clinician, um, but I'm not practicing right now. So we're also contemplating creating a practice. And in the current stage of the game right now, a, a, a practice that would be virtual in nature so that we can serve people without having to um, have a, an office so across the country. And that's what we're really moving all of our research towards and what we're moving our clinical practice towards as well. Yeah, thank you, Susan. So I think, what's the phrase? Research is me search, right? Um, I think we all, we all get into this a little bit because of something that, that we've experienced. So um, um, thanks for sharing that. And both of you are so uh, um, applied in your focus. I suppose um, it really uh, concerned about making sure that the work that you're doing is actually affecting people, um, and um, that that's um, that's really great. Something that <laughs> is unfortunately a little a little rare in our field. Um, so I'm really excited to hear about what you all have actually done. Um, and if I understand correctly, I think both of you studied with Alan Martlett, right? That's right. What we right, Susan. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you you were both in his lab. We were, so I did my postdoctoral fellowship um, from 2003 to 2006. Um, and Susan, you joined, when did you join? Summer of 2007. 2007, so yeah, so I took a position in the, um, in the at the uh, Addictive Behaviors Research Center after my postdoc finished. And Susan and I had the opportunity to work on a project together. And that was the project, um, the Housing First project, where we were evaluating single site housing first mm. for people with um, lived experience of chronic homelessness and alcohol use problems. So that's where we met. That's where it all started. So the magic happened. Love right. it for science. Yes. Love it for science. Yes. <laughs> it's never left after that. Yeah. And shout out <laughs> Alan Marlatt's still making a difference, right? Like through the training. Right. I think that's one of his biggest contributions is the, is the amazing, amazing people that he's helped launch and kind of get uh, established in the field. Like you Absolutely. two have been doing such amazing work for a long time now. And he's kind of got a long lineage. And so even though he's passed on, I think he's still kind of living through uh, our work, if that makes any kind of sense, as, as people who are doing relapse prevention and, and things like that, um, that are still using his work in sight and right. papers to this day. Right. And one of the early proponents of what we will spend a lot of time talking about today, that, that sort of the harm reduction approach. Um, um, and we've got a, a wide range of listeners, um, people who um, are, are sort of on the spectrum of the way they define addiction, the way they consider recovery. Um, and I'm wondering if you all could just speak a little bit to the harm reduction approach, what it means to you, maybe in contrast to, to some other perspectives. I just did the, so just a plug for APA. Seema um, <laughs> um, and I have tried to, against all odds this year during the pandemic, put together um, harm reduction programming. So if folks are interested in hearing about, um, you know, there are, 
uh, some parts of the program this week, symposia, skill building sessions. We did a CE session on harm reduction treatment. Um, so if folks are interested in hearing the different ways in which it's defined and the different levels on which it's practiced, the individual level as a psychotherapist, community level, thinking about safer consumption sites, the meal exchange, um, or policy level, You'll get all that this week <laughs> at the APA virtual Yeah, for the whole year, right? <laughs> shout, shout out, year. shout out, virtual APA and all the heavy lifting that's happened um, with some of the committee members that are a part of this particular episode. Yeah, we're very grateful for Division Fifty um, support um, for making this go virtual. And fortunately, the president Linda Sobel, who is also a huge figure in harm reduction, is the president um, this year and uh, asked that in, in Alan's honor, actually in Alan Marlatt's honor, that this year would be um, commemorating 50 years of harm reduction past, present, and future. Mm -hmm. And so Seema and I, uh, along with Megan Kerouac, who is the co-chair this year, tried to put together a lot of um, programming on harm reduction. And you'll find, if you go to this programming, you'll hear this definition a lot, but the definition that Seema and I were I'm honored to write together with Alan for the last work he uh, created before his death um, was in his book, Harm Reduction. And we define it as, um, you know, uh, harm reduction is a pretty big tent of various types of interventions um, that uh, encompass, you know, can be practiced on various levels um, and can be applied to different kinds of risky health behaviors as well. Um, in the realm of substance use, our focus is in reducing substance-related harm and improving quality of life for people who use substances and their families and communities. And the, I think the, one of the key foundational pieces of that is um, compassion, pragmatism, and um, advocacy. Um, and within that, I think we understand that harm reduction is um, kind of takes out this idea that it's about the amount that a person uses in terms of a substance, or it's about um, use or no use, and no use is good or less use is good. Instead, we're really focused on reducing substance-related harm. Um, and I think the reason why that's so important goes back to um, a review I did for NIAAA a few years ago, um, where I was asked to review literature worldwide um, on socioeconomics and alcohol use. And I didn't know anything about this. So for me, this was a totally new um, world to kind of plunge myself into. And what I found in reviewing the literature, no matter where you went, dominant parts of society could drink a whole lot of alcohol and experience relatively few consequences. Whereas you would find more marginalized communities, communities of color, people who are socioeconomically marginalized, people in rural uh, places, uh, people experiencing homelessness, could even drink just a little bit of alcohol, comparatively speaking, and experience a whole raft of negative sequelae. And so in seeing that, it really kind of takes away this presumption that we have in the field that there are, there's a one-to-one -one relationship between absolute use and absolute problems. And in fact, harm reduction simplifies that by throwing away this use spectrum. Like if you reduce someone's use, the problems will reduce in accordance. That's actually not true. There are so many other factors that go into people's experience of substance-related harm. And so instead of focusing on that absolute use as the means of reducing substance-related harm, we just focus on substance-related harm. And if we could reduce that, that is the key. Um, abstinence or use reduction can be one pathway to harm reduction, but it doesn't have to be the only pathway to harm reduction.
And I think the only thing I would add to that is you'll often hear the tagline that um, harm reduction is meeting people where they're where they are. Mm -hmm. So exactly where they are, wherever that spectrum is for them, and then working with them to identify ways that they can stay safer and healthier if they're choosing to use or moving them towards the goals that they want to see happen for themselves. Right. The way that you've described it, it, it highlights, I think, the compassionate approach, the mm -hmm. compassionate nature of harm reduction, essentially. Mm -hmm. and, and there's a lot of pushback from people about harm reduction, though. Um, can you all speak to that a little bit? I think that there has always been pushback to harm reduction, and it's actually only now that there is uh, a little bit of a more of a sea change, I think, towards mm -hmm. um, acknowledging that, you know, we need more models um, to help people who are struggling with substance use. And we all know our treatment system is so broken. Um, and the more options that we have for people to really meet people where they are, the, um, the more likely we are to see positive changes. Um, so, uh, but I think, I mean, I remember Alan telling us, you know, and I think Linda can, uh, Linda Sobel can talk about this as well. Um, but in the early days, I mean, Susan and I were told, do not put harm reduction in your grants because, and this is, this is mm. back in the early uh, 2000s, um, you know, because that will flag it for potentially not getting funded. And I remember Susan and I used to have like these eight hour long meetings in this room at the Addictive Behaviors Research Center. And one day we were just, you know, we were like, this is not how we want to move forward. We want to be explicit about what we're doing and call it what it is um, and not shy away from that. And to be honest, that's how I think change is made, but there were so a change is made in general and that's how you change the narrative. But it's a slow incremental process and we happen to be at a point in time and a moment in time where so many people had done the groundwork before us to start kind of slowly shifting the shifting the sand. So by the time we came around and we were like, we're gonna say harm reduction in our grants. Um, and uh, and I think I mean uh, one of the one of the proudest moments uh, that I have had in my career, and I won't speak for Susan, but we we were invited in 2000 and was it 15 or 2016? I think 2015 um, to talk about some of our work uh, at the White House, and uh, I remember standing in the White House, the West Wing and just saying the word harm reduction as many times as I could and just kind of calling out Alan's ghost and saying, you know, <laughs> here, I know, I know you thought this day would never come and here we are and here we're talking about, um, you know, harm reduction at, uh, at the highest level that, that we possibly can. So that was an exceedingly high point in my, in my career. I also want to like reiterate what Seema said. So Alan would receive death threats at conferences, like would be left on his car. Um, Alan, uh, I, I spoke with Bill Miller a couple wow. years ago, who um, said, you know, um, we were talking about motivational interview and where it intersects with um, the behavioral harm reduction treatment that we have put together with community members over the last decade. And he said, you know, I guess um, this is the spirit of motivational interviewing, but applied to a harm reduction end. And he said, you know, it pained him because he wanted to make his work harm reduction oriented, but it was just not politically feasible in the 80s and 90s. 
And we heard very similar story um, from Alan, where I remember being an impetuous postdoc that I was, um, was sitting in his office and I, I said, Alan, you know, why do you talk about relapse prevention out the one side of your mouth, but harm reduction out the other side of your mouth? Like, which is it, Alan? <laughs> and he, <laughs> he was such a gentle giant. He just looked at me and smiled and said, well, have you ever heard the story of the Trojan horse? And I was like, yeah, but what does that have to do with this? And he said, well, people weren't ready to hear about harm reduction in the 80s, but we figured if we could at least get people to view their patients as more human, if they could be more compassionate, we could help them understand that relapse is a natural part mm -hmm. of people's experience or struggle with substance use disorder, and humanize that, that would be one step towards harm reduction. So a lot of the folks, and, and Linda has a similar story, you know, mm -hmm. she shares openly her story of, um, you know, fearing for her career, fearing sometimes yeah. for her life and her work, um, going through the controversy she went through. So I think all of our um, forebears um, set the stage for harm reduction. That's not to say we don't still experience pushback, we do. Mm -hmm. um, case in point, we still can't get a harm reduction grant for smoking through. Harm mm -hmm. reduction is still extraordinarily controversial in the realm of smoking because harm reduction was misappropriated and misused by the tobacco industry for many years. And there's a lot of fear around having anything but a black and white stance around nicotine right. tobacco use these days. So we still see areas in which harm reduction is extremely controversial. Um, despite all the evidence in other countries that safer consumption sites save lives, we can't get that happening in this country. We just yeah. can't. Yeah. And there's a huge need for it. Um, so there are certain areas in which we still see that pushback. Um, and I think um, that's discouraging. But um, what we've learned from our forebears in this field and also in the grassroots and community-led efforts is you've got to keep pushing and you have to keep um, moving hmm. forward to save lives and to save our families and the communities yeah. we care so much about. Yeah, I think that's such a, such an interesting thing about the U.S. specifically, right? Is that like the addiction as sin kind of model is like kind of baked in the cake in a lot of yeah. ways, and so yeah. like disentangling that from, you know, the, the in, you know these are individuals <clears throat> that you know have families and that are you know they're just like us, right? They are us we are them and they are we and that these are all just people trying to live lives safer and healthier and happier and that it's not this othering that has to happen and things like that and and you, when you you apply these types of techniques clinically I, you see just a change in the face of a person like i work with teenagers or um, young people like college students and things like that all the time and when they come in they're like oh, i'm not interested in absence and i was like whoa who said abstinence was what i was going to tell you to do man i'm not telling you to do anything I'm just here to help you figure out how we can avoid some of the stuff that perhaps led you to come have to see me because they were mandated or something like this. And then they're like, oh, okay. Right. And then now we suddenly have like, we're meeting where they're at. Right. And, and it just opens up a lot of things. There are drawbacks too. And so I was wondering if you could maybe just speak a little bit about what you think the like clinically, um, like the, the, the benefits and drawbacks of the harm reduction approach are. Hmm drawbacks <laughs> uh, I, you know, we're playing might, we're playing both sides of the coin here i i, I appreciate that Noah. it might be the fact that i am biased because you know my my clinical position um i i moved from 
University of Washington to Washington State University last summer. So um, my clinical position was at Harborview Medical Center and it was uh, serving, um, you know, kind of a, was a safety net hospital serving um, folks who are pretty marginalized. And in our research that we've done, our clinical research, that's also been the population that we've worked with the most. So I might just not see the drawback side because I find harm reduction the only way I can really authentically engage um, with folks I'm working with. Um, but I'll be honest, that's the only way I can engage with my family. Mm. <laughs> that's the only way no, I can engage right. with my, you know, um, it's it, if I want to have relationships with people who use substances and I'm not going to take on that black or white, like Al-Anon approach, like I'm just not going to talk oh. to you if you're using, um, I have to engage with harm reduction. I think maybe there are some people in practice where there might be, um, there might, oh, uh, there is a drawback. Sorry, I did a training last night. <laughs> uh, <laughs> working with mandated clients, like you just yeah. said, no. Yeah. So I think the drawbacks are where um, respecting people's autonomy, respecting our clients' autonomy, um, um, respecting the power of any positive change that they can create for themselves, um, meeting people where they're at, where that hits the system in a way yeah. that hmm. doesn't feel comfortable. <laughs> That's yeah. But that doesn't seem like a drawback of harm reduction, but rather a drawback no. of the way the system has been structured to handle these problems. Yeah, and I think that's the biggest issue. In, it's in the general. drawback of the interlocking systems of oppression. Right. So yeah. Yeah. if we were to make our systems less oppressive, harm reduction would actually be the liberating work that right. we want it to be. But so um, it's, the, it's the containment of the system and the, the punitive nature of the system towards so many of our family members, our friends, our community members that yeah. is really creating the friction and the practice. Yeah, well, and, and when you were when you were talking earlier, Susan, I, I was thinking about how am, I was amazed almost at the the way that the political and social zeitgeist influences like what people are allowed to talk about, like what we're allowed to to use um, to influence policy, um, even if maybe um, Alan had the best idea out there to help the most people, it, it, it wouldn't be allowed just because of the way the political system currently views it. And, and it's amazing how much that influences science and progress. But the other thing I was thinking is about the opioid epidemic, the, the current one um, in comparison to um, those in the 60s, 70s, 80s, um, and how the current epidemic has uh, sort of a di different demographic face, more or less, in, in the sense that this this round of opioid epidemic is whiter than those in the past. And, and I think racism is wrapped up in all of this. It, racism is even wrapped up in why harm reduction is being accepted more now, you know, in, in the sense that now the thing that, that used to be a, a moral issue is affecting uh, white, white men. I mean, I think that that is definitely uh... Oh, everything that you say is absolutely right. And when we look at um, how things are couched within the political and socio um, and economic factors, we really see how, you know, these things, it's very difficult to disentangle. But, you know, one narrative is why are people paying attention to the opioid overdose uh, uh, crisis now? And I think, right. um, you know, that... Uh, People have been dying of opioid overdoses for a really long time. Yeah. Um, 
And so, I mean, obviously there's books that are have been written about the narratives and the rise of the opioid epidemic and all of that and all of that stuff. But I think, um, yeah, it's important to acknowledge that uh, the decisions that we make in this country around policy are couched in so many, so many different, uh, different avenues. And I think absolutely, you know, we talk at the Heart Center, the heart, the so the Harm Reduction Research and Treatment Center, uh, the acronym is HART, and um, and we recognize that we cannot talk about substance use and um, without talking about the racialized drug policies um, and the harms caused to people of color um, throughout the implementation of these policies. And so we really try and take that lens um, and acknowledge that from the start uh, within the work that we do. So I appreciate it. Importantly within that, our own role in the interlocking systems of oppression yeah. and um, in particular anti-Black racism um, that we have been a part of as the treatment community, right? Because we have often inadvertently, but isn't that how systemic oppression works, right? right. Inadvertently, we have been co-opted as clinicians to become an extension of the criminal justice system. Yeah. yeah. We write letters to courts, to judges, to probation officers, to parole yeah. officers, and if they show up and they give us a quote-unquote clean utox, our clients might not have to go back to prison, but we can send them back to prison. So we are a part of that mass right. incarceration. That's not just someone else's problem, as we as treatment providers have to take responsibility for our role in the systemic racism that has affected communities of color for so long now, and mass incarceration of African-American men in particular, mm. um, but so many different parts of um, uh, and, and socioeconomically marginalized folks as well. Um, so uh, we need to take responsibility for that and start to do our part to dismantle it um, in our institutions and through our teaching, through our clinical work, through our research. So true, that's so true. And I'm just gonna briefly soapbox for a second about drug tests and the interlocking systems of oppression. If I get one more review from a grant review committee about self-report of substance use, I'm gonna come unglued. That is that is that is entirely based in stigma and misbelief that individuals who use drugs are liars are and lying. cheats, and that their self-report cannot be trusted. If it was depression, they'd be like self-reports groovy, right? And I have specifically published paper where we looked at biochemical verification of self-report, and it was identical almost. Yeah, right. Using well, EMA, uh, using timeline followback, like. Mm -hmm. We have papers on that too. We found that even folks who are relatively cognitively compromised actually self their self-report and what we find in administrative records are surprisingly like Sur surprisingly uh, accurate. Okay. Yeah. And, and in yeah. clinical practice, Utox comes back with all kinds of wacky stuff all the time, depending on what's going on. It's not right. the absolute truth, right? And so it's so many of the systems that we live on that, that we work within and that individuals that we work with live within are based on this thing being the absolute truth, that you have to have a negative talk screen for you to have housing, for you to live here, for you not to go to prison, for you not to go to jail, for you to see your kids again, right? All of these individual things that are just systematically oppressing individuals in ways. And that's why I think your work with Housing First, I think is so crucial and so important 
And I was wondering if you maybe could speak a little bit about some of the results that you found in that work, a little bit about what that work has been about for our listeners, because I think this might be the first time they've ever heard of it. Yeah. Seema, would you like to start? Sure. <laughs> it's always hard to know who's, who's starting. Yeah, I know. I figured I'd just start doing it. <laughs> just, yeah. Um, so, uh, yes, Housing First is uh, defined as uh, low barrier non-abstinence-based permanent supportive housing, I know that's a mouthful, um, with uh, wraparound case management services available to people who are interested in having, um, having those services, but nothing is required. It's basically just like harm reduction is about reducing harm, Housing first is about providing housing to people um, above all, above everything else. And it's predicated on the fact that housing is a basic human right um, and should not be a result of, you know, I'm putting in air quotes for you listeners um, out there, but uh, as a result of good behavior. Yeah. Um, and so it really flips, housing first really flips the traditional model of, um, treatment first and then you know uh, right. you can have housing it flips that on its head because we know in this country um, people experiencing homelessness um, are typically required first you have to you know get off the get off the right. substances that you're using and then we'll give you a home um, hmm. and housing first completely flips that model on its head and says no, actually, you deserve to have a home. Everybody deserves to have a home. And actually, if you have a home, that in and, in and of itself is a public health intervention. Mm -hmm. um, and um, and Susan and I were involved in uh, an evaluation, as we mentioned at the uh, beginning, uh, towards the beginning of the podcast, to um, to look at the first sort of single site housing first model in the country. Um, and uh, Samuel, you were asking about, you know, what the pushback on harm reduction is. Well, again, I mean, we've been able to kind of see that trajectory. This housing model, um, 2004, uh, was being kind of promoted by the, um, the housing providers at Downtown Emergency Service Center. And there was so much push, like so much negative pushback about, you know, providing housing to people experiencing chronic homelessness without requiring them to stop using their substances. I mean, Susan and I have saved uh, newspaper articles. Mm. Uh, it was it was a very interesting, uh, interesting uh, narrative, very stigmatizing um, some of the articles that uh, that came out. <clears throat> but we were able to show um, and Susan, you can um, add to you know add to this, but uh, we were able to show within the first year of operation um, that taxpayers of Seattle saved over four million dollars by housing. Um, you know, this is a house that uh, that has seventy five uh, beds, so mm. I think forty six apartments and twenty something. Um, uh, cubicles. So just by housing 75, you know, 75 people who were uh, deemed as the highest utilizers of publicly funded services, that includes hospital visits, ER, jail, um, detox, you know, sober, we have a, had a sobering center. So um, a sleep off facility essentially for um, people who were found on the streets who had, uh, had consumed alcohol. Um, and so you know, again, you talked about political, <laughs> politically, um, how some of these things are couched. Well, our first publication focused on the economic impact because yeah. 
we knew that that was the thing that, you know, if, if these were the findings that we were showing, that that was going to speak pretty loudly. Um, and then once we were able to establish that, you know, within the first year of operation, taxpayers saved over $4 million, then that's what really, like, that, that's where Susan and I's story really begins because um, that's when we really started working on all of these secondary um, questions that we had um, and, and were able to establish, um, you know, uh, well, maybe Susan, you can talk about uh, studies that you led around um, alcohol use and specifically. Yeah, and I, I want to just give a shout out to Mary Larimer, another one of our amazing mentors in harm reduction, who led that 2009 JAMA paper that Sima's talking about with the um, decrease in, you know, just a, a over a six month to a year long period, there were substantial changes in people's utilization, um, and then of course spending publicly funded um, uh, uh, healthcare utilization and jail utilization. Um, but what was really important to Seema and myself, especially like myself as a clinician at that time, was, um, well, how are these people's experience of their alcohol-related harm? Um, what's, what's affecting there? And another big thing that came up was the so-called enabling hypothesis. And for those of you who, like myself and my family, went through a lot of 12-step kinds of yeah. uh, scenarios, um, you're familiar with the Alamon model where, you know, the idea is if you in any way, if you're nice to a family member, or you call in sick for a family member um, who's been using substances that you're enabling them um, and they need to, you know, they need to hit rock bottom. And if people don't hit rock bottom, they can't get better. Um, and getting better is solely defined as being abstinent. And so we really thought that this is like a naturalistic way of testing that enabling hypothesis. Okay, so this is housing where people don't have to get sober, they don't have to go to treatment, they don't have to do all these things. Is that enabling? Um, and so we were able to follow folks out for a two-year period after they moved into housing. And quite contrary to the enabling hypothesis, we saw a steep and statistically significant drop-off in not just alcohol-related harm, but also alcohol use. So even though people weren't asked to change their drinking in any particular way, that stability of having a basic need met, uh, you know, housing, shelter, um, was enough to help people, you know, start to make positive behavioral changes for themselves. And then we asked people, you know, we went back into the data and we thought, okay, well maybe because people have stability and now they're connected with case management, maybe they're just going to treatment more. Maybe they're going to abstinence-based treatment and every, that's, that's how this is happening. And what we found was only one person was consistently attending treatment. Uh, or 12-step support during that entire two-year period out of the 95 people that we were evaluating. And in fact, when we pitted treatment attendance against Bill Miller's Socrates scale, so motivation, internal motivation for change, yeah. internal motivation for change was the only thing that predicted people's changes in their alcohol use and alcohol-related harm over time. In fact, treatment attendance had nothing to do with that. It was not predictive of people's change. So that really led us to understand it's actually people leading the way, what's inside of them that is helping them to make these positive behavioral changes for themselves. Maybe what we need to do as clinicians is listen to them right. <laughs> and ask them, what do you need? And we just help them with that instead of trying to lead with our own ideas about what's best for a population and that, you know, although I have my own lived experience and my family's lived experience, I don't have the lived experience of homelessness. And I don't have the same lived experience as a lot of the folks I end up working with. So, you know, being respectful of what do you need 
What is your priority? How can I bolster your existing strengths, your, your existing motivation for change in a way that feels good for you? And that's what we spent then the next subsequent decade doing. And our subsequent RCTs and trials are, what can we bring to the harm reduction movement as clinicians to bolster positive housing first effects, to bolster what grassroots community-led organizations are doing in terms of the needle and syringe exchange? What is our job? And our job is really listening to people and asking them, what do you want to see happen for yourself and advocating for people in the system to make yeah. it easier for people to reach their own goals. That's really interesting that their own boost in motivation resulted in what was the most predictive of, of any change. And, you know, it's funny, you, you guys focused on economics first and um, I think it's sad almost, but it's also true that you kind of have to speak the language of the, the policymakers and the decision makers. And, and so, you know, you talk money um, and, and that's how change is made. But what I'm really curious about is what do you think was, uh, what do you think drove that increase in motivation to change? Like, obviously now they have a home, um, but I imagine that it's not just that. Like, there there must be something else that made them feel like, I don't know, maybe they have, have a chance. You know, it's, I think what, what we found, it's so hard to say that part, but in our qualitative work that we did later, we found that, People who experience homelessness, people who are really marginalized are not very different from anybody else. <laughs> so oftentimes we're like, what is, what is, oh, it's the same thing that drives anybody, right? People want meaningful connections to yeah. people that they care about in their lives. People want to do things in their day that are meaningful. Um, and so when we ask people, um, you know, if you could redesign treatment, what would that look like for you? People were like, well, I have a lot of ideas for what would be helpful. Can, can therapists start listening to me? And then we asked them, well, what, what do you think would be helpful? Well, I want, I want to be able to go to the library more. I want to have a gym membership so I can get back in shape. I want to get back into work. I miss my, you know, I miss my, my sister. I haven't connected with my family. So, um, uh, what we found was it's, there are a lot of different, um, pathways to recovery, but they're the same pathways that we hold on to, anybody holds on right. to, to find strength to get through a challenging time. So really getting behind that as clinicians. I think the thing we, the problem we have as clinicians is we think everything has to be about people's substance use. But what we found through our research is that, you know, maybe 5% of goals that people tell us about have anything to do with abstinence from a substance. Um, and that more than half of those goals typically are about um, meaningful relationships, meaningful right. activities. Um, and so if we can get behind that as clinicians, when people feel their autonomy is respected, when people are connected with those activities, we find that their alcohol use decreases, that their alcohol-related harm decreases in accordance. So we can feel good about that as clinicians. We're not copying out. We're not <laughs> it's not even rolling with resistance. It should be the focus of our treatment is finding out what's important to people and then supporting them in that. When we view people holistically and we take on their priorities as our own in therapy, they can find healing that goes beyond, you know, anything they could have achieved with cognitive behavioral treatment, 12-step facilitation, only focused on how much you drink in this week. How about next week? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, also, I also want to say... Um, 
experiencing homelessness is a full-time job, yeah. you know, from the moment you, you know, if you even sleep, which is, you know, could be dangerous for you to fall asleep uh, for a new, numerous reasons. Um, but, you know, at every point in your day, you're thinking, where am I going to get food? Where am I going to eat? Where am I going to do this? Um, and so when you move somebody inside and there is some level of like, they're no longer it's like yeah. madness hierarchy of needs, right? They no longer have to be thinking about all of those things. It allows people to actually have time to start thinking about the things they want to see happen for themselves. Right. Um, and so I think that uh, to answer your, your question from before, that's a big part of it is like you remove that, uh, all of those extraneous factors where it's taking up people's brain space. They don't, you know, um, right. and, and you give people a home and, uh, and, and so suddenly, you know, you're able to see kind of, uh, changes just from that intervention alone. Yeah. I think that really speaks to a lot of the work that I, that I'm interested in and I do with, a, with alternative activity engagement and alternative reinforcement. Um, but this basic idea that many people use substances because they either don't have very many things that are meaningful to them in their lives, or maybe they don't have access to it, or their focus, like like you're saying, Seema, is on uh, survival and uh, stress management and um, sort of this moment to moment, just trying to get through. And, and when you can uh, remove that and then give them access to these al alternatives, or at least the ability to have access to these alternatives then things start to turn around on their own. Yeah, absolutely. And actually our research has found that to be the case as well. So, um, you know, after people moved inside and Susan and I still continued to work alongside uh, people who had lived experience of homelessness to kind of better understand and, and work to um, help identify ways to keep people safer and healthier after their move into housing, um, we actually formed a, um, a community advisory board of people with lived experience um, to help us like co-develop programs and services that they wanted to see happen um, at their residential facility that they had autonomy and control over. And what we found is that people um, who engaged in, you know, and then we developed those programs and then we tested to see, um, you know, uh, people's level of engagement with those programs. Um, and what we found is that the more connected they were to the meaningful activities. So these are things like arts-based programming, yeah. um, you know, uh, um, we had different speakers. Talking circles for people who are native, who weren't mm. feeling like they were native providers or that they didn't have any culturally competent care <laughs> or culturally appropriate options that were respectful of where they were coming from and what they felt like was healing. Mm, so yeah. basically we followed the lead of the residents um, to tell us the things that they wanted to see in their house. And once they had alternative activities, um, we saw a, you know, a relationship with a decrease in alcohol-related harm. They're reporting an, an alcohol-related mm -hmm. harm. And I think that um, you're, you know, what you just spoke to, Samuel, is exactly, uh, exactly the case. When people are connected to meaningful activities in their lives, um, they're able to focus on those things and, uh, and there might not be as much of a need for them to be engaging in the substance use yeah. piece.
Yeah, I think that's so huge. And it, it also ties into some of the work that I do. Most of my work looks at the interface between mood and, and um, use disorder development and treatment. And what I find is that it's not like how bad you feel, it's the absence of positive feelings that really drives harms and, and use disorder and things like that, especially in youth. And that, you know, connect, how do we promote positive feelings, right? It's like connection to these types of activities that are meaningfully related to me. Uh, and so any early therapists who are listening to this podcast right now, there's an expert in the room when you meet with, with your client, it's the client. <laughs> <laughs> you will never understand their life like they do. Yeah. Right. That's an impossibility. And so really it's helped me understand it like you do yeah. because you know what's best for you and your life. Um, when I'm working with somebody that I think that's the vantage point that I try to try to have. And so I encourage any early therapists out there to really lean into that. The per, you're meeting an expert. Yeah. They're an expert in their life and that they know what, it's going to be helpful for them. And that's not time for advice giving and things like this. Instead, it's allow them to guide me to help them, if that makes any kind of sense. That is so beautiful, Noah. And that's what we've learned is co-learning is amazing. It takes the pressure off of you, especially when you're a young therapist coming up. You don't have to know all the answers. Like right? you have an expert right there. And yeah. if, if they if you build that trusting relationship and they can tell you how am, how are they using what is their drug set setting? Um, then you can learn new harm reduction strategies from the experts. Because yeah. um, I was recently reminded, another plug for ABA 2020, Shiloh um, <laughs> Jama, who is the um, executive director and co-founder of the People's Harm Reduction Alliance in Seattle, does this amazing talk. Um, we got to do an hour and a half long interview with him. And then Simo went and filmed him doing a naloxone training. And... Um, and safer, talking about safer use. Um, and what I have learned um, is that I've learned everything I know from people like Shiloh who can talk about the experience. What is it like on the streets? What, is, what, is, what are the contaminants currently in the streets? Um, what, um, what are some safety strategies that are really creative? Um, and then what I can do as a, as a therapist is I can go and check that out with authoritative sources, take it back to the Harm Reduction Coalition website, check it out with people that you know to be sure, because sometimes people think something's safer, but maybe it isn't, or it's not, you know, they could tweak it just a little bit to be even safer and save their lives, their friends' lives. So, um, but we can engage in that co-learning. It's about listening to yeah. the lived experience, um, respecting that, you know, and figuring out what can you bring to the table in terms of like, um, additional scientific or clinical knowledge that they might not have. And you can like, you know, when they're at a fork in the road, you can give them the science they need to make an informed decision. And then it's their decision. And we respect that autonomy that they know what's best in their life context um, and what will be most pragmatic for them moving forward. But I love that the co-learning is everything. Yeah. I love too, that you said mood, like, I'm going to take that with me. Like have, we need to like, um, Send me some articles. <laughs> I'm on it. I'm on it. I'm on I, I love that you said it's about what makes you feel good, not just that you know, people struggle. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's like that you need the positive thing in addition to whatever the struggle is. Exactly. That can be, the, that can be the, the thing that keeps you in that growth mindset or that thing that helps you bridge to the next um, to the next day versus you know giving up. And so I really appreciated that. It's profound. Yeah. 
Thank yeah, you for that. I, I actually took notes because I'm working with young adults experiencing homelessness and uh, trying to do some of this co-development of meaningful activities. And so I'm going to remember that. So thanks. <laughs> thanks yeah. for that, Carl. Happy, yeah, I'm happy to, happy to talk to either of you. And I know Sam does some stuff in this, in this space too. So whatever you two need to help these, um, move these initiatives along, I think it would be so crucial, right? And I think that's what I hear when I hear you say, like, at least the people I've worked with, right? Like, you know, removing them from homelessness and then changing their context allows them space to think about what their life could be like if it was different and it gives them momentum, right? Like, oh, things can change and I already feel better, right? And it's just pushing them forward to like, what, what would be the next thing look like, right? And stuff like that. And so, uh, I think it's so, so crucial that everybody's feeling all of the time, right? And we got to pay attention to it. At least that's uh, at least my take on it. But of course, I'm obviously biased. So I know we're a little bit tight on time with some things. And so I know a lot of, of, of the work that you two have done interfaces and kind of in, in the realm of like intersectionality between um, substance use and um, like marginalized communities and things like that. And both of you hold prominent positions in the society of addiction psychology um, that are currently have initiatives that are working on kind of stuff to help us to make differences as it relates to individuals who are historically marginalized or underrepresented groups. And so I was wondering if uh, Seema, if you could speak for just a second, a little bit about what the committee that you're working with is, is doing right now as it relates to those issues, because we're kind of in an interesting watershed moment. And I think it's important that we kind of ride the momentum and I think harm reduction is part of that, but also, um, you know, our, how we're relating to trainees and things like this. And so I was wondering if you could just speak to that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So um, thanks, Noah, for bringing that up. So I am currently the chair of the um, uh, the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion uh, Committee for APA's Division 50. And um, we are in a watershed moment. <laughs> Absolutely, I agree with you. Um, and really, we are um, the committee. Our committee has kind of come up with three priority areas for our division, um, and mainly those are really looking at our policies that we have had in place um, since Division 50 has been in existence to really just ensure accountability um, and make sure we have equitable systems on a division level. Um, you know, the membership committee, which Susan is and you are both a part of, um, has been really instrumental in, um, in, in uh, this particular initiative. Um, and also Susan's role as the program chair and really identifying ways that we can ensure that applications <laughs> that we're reviewing um, are uh, include equitable systems um, when we're, you know, when we're looking at uh, which, which symposiums are put forth, which posters are put forth. Um, and so we're really, um, really working, you know, we've got commitment from leadership. Um, so thank you, Linda Savell. Thank you, Joel Gruby. Um, and we're going to be working very closely with um, with uh, the president um, Joel Gruby for this next cycle, as well as the executive committee, to just ensure that um, that uh, equitable systems are 
baked into <laughs> baked into uh, our division. Um, and then we're really looking, our second priority area is really looking to increase our uh, profile, the division's profile um, of research on these various topic areas related to equity and social justice. Um, and then also promote um, uh, students from underrepresented uh, groups as well. Um, so we kind of want to encompass that piece. And then the third piece is really um, where we're working super closely with the membership committee and I know Samuel um, and Keenan Joyner are also putting forth some ways um, that we can retain and recruit um, students from underrepresented groups to really enrich the division. Um, and, you know, that includes things like building a mentorship, um, you know, program for students of color um, and other, other underrepresented students um, to have access to mentors in the field. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I mean, those are kind of I know I'm just uh, just riffing off the top of my head here, but those are the three priority areas that we've laid out for um, this next and hopefully these will kind of be the guiding this will be the guiding document that moves the committee forward um, in ensuring that we have the most equitable committee that we can. Yeah, yeah agreed and, and right it's important because addiction right like addiction research has been kind of like right there in over-policing and things like that or the historically, whether right, wrong or indifferent or like whether we were part of it or got co-opted or any of those things. So we no longer can be silent. That's right. right. And, there's, and there's so many things that we have to speak up on. One of them is the leaky pipeline that we have for individuals with lived experience of these things, individuals from um, historically underrepresented groups, right? How our training programs, how our committees, how our conferences, um, help move people along the pipeline, help retain people so that that lived experience that we just talked about as being like super valuable actually gets to be a deliverable mm -hmm. for our field, right? So shout out anybody who is out there who's thinking they shouldn't apply, apply, yes. all right? <laughs> apply to work in these, in these fields, mm -hmm. right? If you got lived experience, it's not the kiss of death. Apply, right. apply, apply, apply to work with me, I don't care, <laughs> CSUs, counseling PhD program. I'm taking students next year. I hope to see your application right. seriously. Yeah, and I really want to echo um, what you said, Noah, because I had considered writing about my experience, my family's experiences in my graduate school applications, and I was actively discouraged not to do that by mentors because it would red flag me. Yeah, same here. And, and they weren't wrong. It was true. I sat in committees thereafter too before I was open about my experiences and people would be red flagged in those meetings where Certainly. their applications were discussed. Yeah. So I think that was protective, but I think the more out, once we're in positions of power, the more out we can be about our own lived experiences, the more out we can be about um, whatever form of marginalization we've experienced in this field as well as in our general life experience the more we're shedding light on that for the folks coming up to feel like they have mentors who they can relate to. So I, I love that you said that. And Seema, Seema kind of downplayed the important role she's played this year, as she always does, so self-effacing. But um, I have to say Seema has like single-handedly been crafting, not single-handedly, but has really um, you know worked hard to craft statements, to start to formalize what mentorship 
um, could look like across, you know, and, and not just um, contained within one committee, but that we're going to consortiums to be able to involve multiple committees at Division 50 to committing to, um, you know, having more equitable opportunities for students coming up and early career psychologists because it's absolutely crucial. Um, so uh, thank you, Seema, for everything that you have done and um, really bringing the DEI committee, like, like really, I mean, y'all have been like hardcore this year and um, on membership, we're doing everything we can to support that as well. And I think too, one thing I noticed on the program committee, there are easy fixes. Sometimes these systemic issues are actually not that hard to fix. It's just no one's paying attention. And that's because white supremacy sometimes blinds us to like things that should be obvious and things that are actually pretty easy to fix. So just asking BCA at APA to like put in, actually make functional the diversity, equity, and inclusion criterion in, you know, judging the symposia that we get. Just put that in there and make that something that is not just an afterthought, but is something to aspire to. Mm -hmm. That we're telling researchers, this is a priority at APA. This is a priority at Division 50. Um, you know, rewarding researchers who are doing that good work in their own communities. Um, that, that we need to prioritize that, and it's easy for us. So um, why not? Like, pay attention is what we need to do. Pay attention and um, listen to folks with lived experience, listen to folks from diverse communities, and be responsive when we have that opportunity to um, leverage our power to create sustainable change. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, think that, I think that's huge, right? Is that just leveraging, like once we assume power positions, right, then we can leverage that power to open up the field to, to the people that need to be here, Yeah, right? Yeah. And that our field needs, right? Like, I think that's it. And so I know yeah. we only have a few minutes left, and so I was hoping we could pivot um, to some of some take-home messages. Um, so if you had to take your work um, and kind of say what you think that people in recovery, what would be the take-home message for people in recovery from the harm reduction work that you've done um, in, in just a few minutes, what would you say? No, for me, I think I just, I have a few words that spring up. Um, self-determination and autonomy and really giving the power back to the individual to make the changes in their own lives um you know and we walk alongside them and support them in that journey and i think as clinicians that is what we can do um, to help move the harm reduction movement forward anything to add susan I think that's beautiful. Yeah, I think, so I think and, and and instead of like like seeing that as like oh our this is a hard client to work with like like what Seema just said we have the honor of getting to walk beside someone if they will let us on their journey and we should embrace that and be grateful and mm -hmm. learn what we can from them and you know show them that respect. Um, that you know, they, they, it's not even like, we can't give them the power because they're gonna make their own decisions anyway, um, but at least they have someone along the journey with them and they're not alone. And that's a huge role, that's a huge corrective emotional experience that we can give people and um, to be there with them and bear witness to whatever their struggles are and their triumphs. And we should embrace that and honor that and love that and be grateful for that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, you kind of spoke to the next one too, uh, that we would ask is take home message for practitioners. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was going to say it sounds. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, it sounds all encompass all encompassing. So, what about take take home messages for policymakers? You know, I think that um, we've been really lucky in that we've been positioned from the beginning for for some of our projects. So, the 1811 East Lake, the Housing First, sorry, <clears throat> the Housing First project was already steeped in political. <laughs> there was a lot of political, you know. Uh, whatever that word is around it and so we could speak to the numbers we could speak to the data and say well this is what we find with this model right. housing and um, and another project that we were involved in looking at alternatives to um, the criminal justice system and when you can when your work can speak directly to um, you know issues that are already politicized as researchers and academicians, our role is to share those numbers and share that data. Um, and um, and so, if you're looking to get more active in policy, you know, answer questions, answer research questions that actually specifically address mm -hmm. um, the controversies, and then you can speak just to your data. And that's what we do as as um, scientists. So, that's what I would say. Trying to advocate for. Uh, data-driven policy making. Absolutely. Agreed. Absolutely. And, and be really on. You know, that's another piece I think is important is we have, our, you know, we all acknowledge we are not blank slates. As scientists, we do have certain biases, but being really open to being wrong about what we find yeah. uh, in, the, in the data. And I think that's, um, that's an important piece of it too. Yeah, I think, I think that's huge being data agnostic, right? Like, with the data are the data are the data, right? Mm -hmm. And like, try not to, you know, I think it's just, it's, that's so key. I would say like one of our roles is harm reductionists, even though most of us might be working on the individual level in our research. I mean, Seema and I have worked a little bit on the community level, but um, many of us in clinical practice or in our research will work on the individual level. We should still be thinking about the other levels, right? We should think about how our individual work, like Seema just said, could influence policy. And we were given a platform because of Alan and because of Mary to use that work. And then we became known for that so people would seek us out, you know, um, to do that kind of work, to do more um, public facing um, um, program evaluations on harm reduction interventions. And we would do that because we believed in the work. So if you have the platform, use the, again, leverage the power you have and the, the work you generated to not just have it, you know, I don't wanna make this sound cool and not just pad your own CV, but like, you know, to really use that for good for right. the communities you're working with. Um, and I will say that doesn't always come as second nature because a lot of times we're not rewarded for that, right? In academia, that's no. not what will get us promoted. It's not what keeps our jobs um, protected. And it's that I think needs to change in terms yeah. of academia. Um, you know, work that's done to dismantle racism should be like valued in yeah. our yeah. institutions. Yeah. Um, work that's being done to, you know, promote science in influencing policy should be valued, even though it's not a peer-reviewed publication, that's huge. And that has implications that maybe go beyond a peer-reviewed publication. So mm -hmm. I think we in academia have a lot of soul searching to do about what are our priorities and what are we really in this for? Right. Um, and so to that point, like I had, you know, uh, I was, was co-teaching a class with um, a community member that um, was a, a dear friend and colleague and, 
um, ended up being one of our employees, Joey Stanton, um, who um, sadly uh, died in, in May after a long battle with lung cancer. Um, and Joey um, was a resident at 1811 Eastlake, a proud alum of 1811, he would always say, um, and was one of our first community advisory board members. And we were co-teaching a class together on substance use and the students were like, well, why don't you like, why don't you change the law? If like Washington State doesn't allow, doesn't allow you to bill for harm reduction services, why don't you just change it? You've done all this research. And Joey was like, yeah, why don't you just change it, Susan? And I wouldn't have thought of that. And it took him, and then every week he would come back to our meeting and be like, are we changing that? Are we changing that? Are we changing that? And it was, it was only through him reminding me, why are we doing this work, right? Um, it's for the community. And so we were able, we reached out to folks we knew. And again, this is who you know, and like networking is everything. Without Alan and Mary, we never would have known um, one of our state representatives, Nicole Macri. And she, you know, I said, can we change this law that means that all publicly funded substance use treatment in Washington state is required to be abstinence-based by law? That's not the case in every state, but in our state it was. And she said, you know, we've been talking about something like that for a while. I think we might have traction. And she connected me with another representative, Lauren Davis, who was doing a lot of work in this bent. And um, we were able to reshape the state law. Um, and through House Bill 1768, now um, non-abstinence-based services, um, you can bill for those in Washington State. And that was not the case before last year. So to me, it was students reminding me what my duty was. It was a community members, right? You know, it was like all these things had to come together for me to get the memo. This is not just about writing papers. And that's power, that's power and privilege right there, right? Yeah, I'm like, yeah. I'm just going to write this paper in my office. No, like do something right. with it. Be sure that it serves people in some way. So right. that's something I would also say is just kind of think about that. If you have a platform, think how many to serve the community with this work. Yeah. Right. Thank you so much, Susan and Seema. Um, Seema's stepped out at this point, but um, we, we really appreciate you being here. And, and that conversation, uh, honestly, it fired me up a lot. It made me really excited uh, to, to just be a part of this field. Um, you all are doing great work. And I'm wondering if you have any advice for trainees like myself, um, other, other people in the field who are, are, are just starting their career. What would you say to, to me and, and other people like myself? Um, I would say what I did not know about, I did, I was not connected to division 50, um, when I was coming up and, um, do that, <laughs> um, get involved because the networking is, um, so important. And I know that we often, you know, um, talk about that in maybe a, a not so positive light, um, because it sounds superficial, but the only way you can do community-based participatory research, or I think as we were having a side conversation, any research is by working together. And so building your networks, figuring out who is doing similar research or who's not and who you need to learn from, connecting with folks who already have their feet wet, who are established, have roots down somewhere so you can watch and learn um, that is so valuable than trying to figure it all out on your own. Yeah. Um, so I mean that not just network so that you can get to positions of power. <laughs> I mean, I want that for everyone too, but, um, but, but also so that um, you can learn the craft um, in a way that feels manageable and that you have the support you need and the mentorship you need along the way. It, it's huge. 
And when, and you'll find that opportunities come to you um, and you'll have, you know, things will open up um, because Seema and I couldn't do anything without the mentors we had. My first mentor was Kim Frommy, who was one of Alan's students as well. <laughs> and I am so grateful for the opportunities Kim gave me. And then, you know, Kate Carey and Steve Maisto were my graduate school advisors and they opened doors for me that, you know, I couldn't have opened on my own. Um, Samuel Ball at Yale and, um, and of course, Alan and Mary at the University of Washington. And I'm, I'm deeply indebted. I know Seema would say the same. Um, and so those, those relationships, those networks, those mentorship relationships um, will take you to places so that you can, you have a platform on which you can do your work and really help the community in bigger ways than you could do on your own. Yeah. Thank you so much, Susan. Indeed. Thank you so much for having us. I'm really grateful that y'all are doing this podcast and I hope it's helpful for students and early career folks out there. And I'm just grateful for everyone out there working with communities and, and doing the good work. So thanks yeah. for everything all the listeners are doing too. Yeah. next episode, we're excited to have Dr. Noel Vest join us. He's a postdoctoral fellow working with Dr. Keith Humphreys at Stanford University School of Medicine. His research focuses on the intersection between mental health, substance use disorders, poverty, social justice, addiction recovery, pain, and prison reentry. As a formerly incarcerated scholar, he's a strong advocate for social justice issues and public policy concerning prison reentry. We're hoping to have a really interesting conversation with him about his background, about how that interfaces with research and how to be able to take research findings and develop public policy initiatives focused on these issues. So we're really excited to have him. Yeah, we're really excited to have him. So make sure that you tune in.